All right, guys. <clears throat> this is, I don't know how else to say it. I've found this section of John's gospel uh, to be perplexing. And some of it, I think, for me, is that I wrestle with some of the concepts of, uh, like internally, with some of the, the, the concepts related to um, homiletics, and uh, which is which is a, a seminary word for uh, like the practice of preaching, like the art of preaching, sort of deal. Um, and, and mostly because over the years, one of the things I've learned is that like pastors are, are frequently trying to be clever, <laughs> you know, uh, whether it's things like the use of alliteration in titles or other things, you know, and, and we, we have other sorts of devices that uh, we try to use for, sometimes for memory aids, uh, sometimes sometimes we just want to be clever, right? Sometimes we also want to be seen as clever, which is another issue altogether. Um, but uh, sometimes when I come to the text, the reason why I'm bringing it up is that when I come to the text and I'm like reading through the text, I'm like, this is really hard to like, <laughs> to be like, right, here's my three points and, you know, my summary or whatever. I mean, you guys obviously have been around me long enough to know that I don't, I don't really think like that anyways, but I wrestle internally with that stuff um, uh, a lot <clears throat> for, for various reasons. But uh, when I as I've been reading through this the past few weeks, again, sort of um, examining it, thinking about it, I found it to be um, uh, refreshing uh, some and challenging some. Um, maybe that's always what it should be. <laughs> uh, both of those things, uh, as well as many others. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe as we get into it, you'll see, uh, you'll see what I mean as we kind of talk about it. Let's read through the chapter here, John chapter seven. We've only got 52 verses today, right? So that's like a breeze, right? So <laughs> last chapter was 71. So <laughs> <laughs> All right, so <laughs> let's read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll um, kind of talk about Jesus secretly going to to Tabernacles to celebrate the Feast of uh, Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. So, um, Sukkot. Uh, All right, John seven verse one. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe him. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world can't hate you, because, or, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But... When his brothers had gone up, he, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. 
However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, never having, or having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own, my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And and you circumcise a man on on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on Shabbat, on the Sabbath? Don't judge according to appearance, but judge Judge with righteous judgment. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Messiah, the Christ? However, we know, we know where this man's from. But when the Messiah comes, no one knows where he's from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me. And you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When when the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the the diaspora, the dispersion among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What is this thing what is this thing that he said you will seek me and not find me and where I am you cannot come on the last day the that great day of the feast Jesus stood and cried out saying if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water but <coughs> This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah, the Christ. Some said, Will will the Messiah come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? 
The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? (laughs) Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Some contempt there, right? I'm sure they made all the Galileans feel great. (laughs) All right, Uh, let's pray. Father, we we come to you not just to the uh, the things written uh, on this uh, the pages here, not just to this ink and 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 paper, uh, but we come to you, the living God, and uh, to your Son, the living Word, and we pray, O oh, Father, that you would lead and that you would teach, that you would instruct by the Spirit whom you've given to all of us who've trusted you. What a great joy! What a promise that in us would be rivers, fountains of living water. Praise you, God, for what you have done. Let us be a people who rejoice in you and who share. Please. As our time is short. Be our help, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, back up with me to the beginning of the chapter here. A couple of themes that I noted kind of running through this, and, and maybe you noted them as you ran through it. Uh, there's a couple of times where it seems like the, the crowds and the rulers or the Pharisees or others that are commenting, there's a couple different exchanges of commentary, and sometimes it's like they contradict each other, like where they're like, one time they're like, well, well who knows where the Messiah is from, right? And then later on they're like, wait, isn't the Messiah supposed to be from uh, the, the child of David, you know, from Bethlehem, whatever, that, the place of David? You know, so like you see some of that happening. You have to recognize that they're they're different people that are making these comments, right? Different uh, different uh, people as we're going through the story. Uh, Another thing that I noted is this: Um, Jesus seems to be fully convinced of the sovereignty of of God and of God's ability to preserve and to keep him, and also of 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 timing, right? Of God's timing in the things that are happening in his life. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, A couple of times he's like, references this idea, John references for us this idea that Jesus is saying his time has not yet come. Coupled with that is another thing. Over and over and over again, it says people were trying to lay hands on him, but they couldn't. (laughs) Like over and over and over again, nobody could lay hands on him like that. Like, uh, like they were trying to take him, they were trying to seize him or capture him over and over and over again, but it couldn't. It just wouldn't happen, right? Uh, so there's this this timetable that is being played out. Jesus seems to be at least relatively aware of this, and and I don't know if maybe this is in reference. That idea is in reference to like the um, the uh, prophecies in Daniel. Uh, the coming of the the uh, rock cut without hands who destroys the kingdoms of men uh, and and more than that, the prophecy of the seventy weeks, the seventy heptads, uh, and after a certain number of heptads after the um, the restoration of Israel, after a certain number of years, um, the uh, text references um, um, the Messiah essentially being cut off 
um, that sort of thing. Uh, so regardless, Jesus is aware of some sort of, of, of timetable that is being played out here. Uh, as I've been listening recently, particularly to the prophets, uh, to the Jewish prophets, uh, beginning, uh, I'm not sure I could say the prophets begin in Isaiah, but but um, <laughs> uh, certainly the uh, books of the prophets, uh, we might say, uh, begin in Isaiah. There's obviously much prophecy before that. Um, but uh, as I've been listening to them, one of the things that struck me as I've been um, going through those texts is how sure God is in what he's doing. Over and over and over and over again, like God is just, he, he knows what he's doing. And as he's speaking through the prophets and telling, whether it's Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or others, uh, what's happening, uh, not only in relation to God's relationship to Israel, but frequently these Jewish prophets also have prophecies related to the, the nations around them, right? Um, Frequently, these are prophecies of judgment related to those nations. But not only that, much of the prophecy in those books is itself prophecy that is a judgment against against God's people first, against Israel. Right? But it doesn't end there. The prophets not only speak of God's judgment of Israel because of their rebellion to him, but the prophets also continue to speak of God's faithfulness to Israel and of God's promise of restoration to them. That God would bring back a remnant, that God would fulfill his promise, that like in the book of Jeremiah, that God would make a new covenant that isn't like the old covenant that they broke, right? Um, all sorts of that type of thing. But there's a surety there that I find, that I have been finding, Refreshing and also challenging <laughs> because I have eyes <laughs> and I can see the chaos happening in the world around me, <laughs> right? <clears throat> and I'm challenged by that, challenged by the revelation of, of God's sovereignty. And I can find myself saying, Lord, why? <laughs> Why that? Or why this, Lord? Or why now? Rarely has the Lord answered those questions for me. (laughs) But continually, he has been teaching me that he can be trusted. Interestingly enough, the more I learn about myself, the less I think I can be trusted. (laughs) I'm like, Lord, let me know why. And he's like, I don't know if I can trust you with that information. (laughs) Maybe, maybe that's that's how the Lord feels about it. I I don't know. (laughs) All right, let's jump into the text here. Chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. That's such a plain, a plain thing to say. The Jews, the, the sort of leadership of Israel is beginning their contempt toward Jesus because of the things they're hearing and seeing from him and about him from others. And so Jesus does this. He stays in Galilee, <laughs> right? Now, there are festivals where he's going to travel down with the group. He's going to travel down with everybody to Jerusalem uh, at certain times for specific things. Like one of them is what's happening here, this Feast of Tabernacles or uh, the Feast of Booths. Now, we'll talk a little bit about that here in a second. But um, this is one of those uh 
there were three festivals in Israel that Moses commanded all of the men to appear uh, at the tabernacle. And then, of course, later that was translated to the temple when a more, the more permanent structure was eventually uh, built by Solomon. Okay. But in the law, in Moses, there were three of the, of the seven overall festivals, Jewish festivals or feasts, three of them where all the males were commanded to go to Jerusalem, of course, if, if possible. Right. To make every effort to uh, appear before the Lord is the, the phrase that's used to go to what would eventually be Jerusalem, to go to the tabernacle and then later on the temple, which was uh, erected in Jerusalem. So um, this is one of those situations there. But for the most part, he stayed up in the Galilee in the northern part of Israel. I'm going to get a couple of maps so we can wrap our mind around that uh, here in a little bit. Um, Not this week, but um, I'm going to get a couple of maps for us so we can get our heads around the topography of Israel. I think it's helpful. Now, verse uh, 2 says this. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Okay, Uh, This is a fall, one of the fall festivals, uh, tabernacles or booths. It's also called Sukkot. uh, it's a week-long festival where, uh, among other things, uh, Jews would build, they would construct um, temporary dwelling places. They would take um, sticks, and, and the tradition of the Jews is fairly elaborate related to how, how they were to construct these booths or these tents or tabernacles. It wasn't a tent, in, and still isn't a tent, in the way that you and I think of like modern tents, right? Uh, but uh, it's a, a, essentially a, a wood-framed structure that you would put uh, different types of branches on and around. And the goal was to give you shade during the daytime for this week as you sort of lived in this. That's the idea is that you stayed in this tent or this booth, this tabernacle during this week-long festival. It was also one of the festivals that was com- Israel was commanded to have joy. I think that's fascinating. They were commanded to to be happy, like to, to have joy during this festival. <laughs> it's uh, wonderful, right? Uh, and it was a commemoration of, uh, among other things, it was a commemoration of Israel's traveling through the wilderness, but of God's provision for them in the wilderness, right? They lived in tents for 40 years and God provided for them in miraculous ways. He provided water, he provided food, he made it so that their clothes and even their shoes didn't wear out. And the text refers to their feet not swelling so their shoes could still fit, that sort of thing, right? So um, in, in very special ways, God provided for Israel. And the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was a commemoration of, of that. So not only were you uh, supposed to have shade during the daytime from the sun, but at night there was supposed to be enough openings in the roof of it so that you could see the stars in the sky as you were laying down at night in the booth to sleep. That was also part of the uh, requirements for these booths. Now, one of the traditions related to this uh, became that um, the Jews would eventually gather both wine and uh, water, and they would bring them both. The water would be collected from um, the Pool of Siloam, uh, and they would bring it up to the temple every day, and they would pour it out in the temple. Some of the uh, some of the references to this that I found uh, talk about them pouring it into a laver or into a, a giant bowl uh, there in the temple compound. Others uh, reference it just being poured out sort of as an offering um, 
to the Lord. Um, but regardless, this was a something that was regular, regularly happening during this week-long festival. They were gathering the water from the Pool of Siloam. They would bring it up into the temple compound, and then they would uh, pour it out. Okay, so why are you bringing that up? Well, we'll get to why as we continue through the story, why I'm bringing that up. I want to have your minds wrapped around this. This is one of the three festivals where all the men are required to travel to wherever the place of God was. Of course, this was uh, Jerusalem, where the temple was located. And uh, so, that's where we are. The, fe- the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. John tells us why his brothers have this kind of attitude with him. I think it's fascinating to see what happens with uh, with Jesus' brothers, or at least a few of them, as we come to the tradition of uh, the book of Jude and the book of James uh, later on in the Bible. Early on, we see them not believing him, being critical, like we're finding here. They're like, if you want people to know who you really are, why aren't you going? Everybody's gathered in Jerusalem for booths, for tabernacles. Why aren't you going and making yourself known? Why aren't you? It doesn't make. It didn't make sense to them from a natural standpoint, right? One thing I want to also use as a maybe a warning for us is that reality that the people that don't know the Lord may very well be confused by the choices that you make as you are wanting to flow in whatever the direction is that God is leading your life. It very well may look confusing to a world that doesn't know Him. They may be saying you have the wrong priorities or you're not really seeing what's really valuable or what's really important here. But the truth is your priority may very well be the correct one while others is not. Jesus' priority was to be obedient to the Father and his brothers didn't understand what was happening. They were like, no, if you want, to, if you want people to know you're Messiah, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. That's what John says in, in verse 5. For even his brothers didn't believe in him, at least at this point. They didn't, they didn't really uh, trust in him. Okay, and they're being critical of him. Like, okay, you're up here in Jerusalem or in Galilee, Feast of Tabernacles is at hand. Why don't you go down there and let your disciples know who you really are? Like, make yourself known to everybody. Um, Paul talks about this idea in the beginning of uh, the first letter we have of uh, his letters to the church at Corinth. This idea of of uh, the world not understanding or not not knowing the things that are spiritual because they're spiritually discerned. And the way that we learn spiritual things is from the Spirit of God. And if we don't have His Spirit, then of course we would lack that type of insight into spiritual things. Verse 5, as we read, says, even his brothers didn't believe in him. Uh, Maybe you have some family that doesn't trust the Lord. (laughs) Well, Jesus did too. (laughs) So, uh, <clears throat> let us continue to pray <laughs> and continue to share in, in truth and, and uh, pursue the Lord for those uh, family members whom we love. Then Jesus said to them, verse 6, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. I just want to give a quick little statement about that. Jesus said to his brothers, that the world can't hate them, but that the world hates Jesus because Jesus testifies of it that its works are evil. Okay? I find it fascinating 
the way that sometimes people talk about Jesus who don't necessarily follow Jesus. And sometimes people say, uh, even criticize Christians or the church and say, well, you should be more like Jesus. And oftentimes I'm like, I'm not sure you really have, have actually heard Jesus <laughs> when you say that. Because uh, he has some pretty severe things uh, that he says. Um, it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Which is also, by the way, not something that is really sort of the modern uh, the modern cultural embrace of Jesus frequently isn't centered around that idea of Jesus testifying of it that its works are evil. The modern cultural Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, but the modern cultural Jesus is one that says, I am just love, which means whatever you do is fine. Everything is fine, doesn't matter to me. But the Jesus of the Bible, who actually is love, <laughs> says, I'm hated by the world because I'm telling the world that what it's doing is evil. <coughs> right? Like that's, there's a um, difference there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and that can be hard. That can be hard from maybe from my perspective or our perspective where we're saying, um, I want people to follow Jesus and I want to be faithful to him. And I also need to speak the truth in love. And um, sometimes that means calling a spade a spade, right? Saying this is evil. I think I found it helpful to remind people as I'm sharing with them maybe difficult things. I found it helpful to say, yeah. I found it helpful sometimes to remind people that I am also evil. <laughs> right? that, that, like, I'm, I'm a part of Jesus' church because he's rescuing me. Right. I, I don't go to somebody and say, well, you should act better like I am. You know what I mean? Like, you, you should get your act together because I've got my act together or whatever. Uh, but instead, uh, I can go uh, hopefully with some, with some humility and uh, examining the, you know, the, the removing the, the plank from my own eye as I'm going to, to deal with the speck in someone else's eye and say, I understand. <laughs> because... Um, because I need a savior too. Like that's why I'm. That's why I'm here. Uh, because Jesus is a savior. He is my savior. <clears throat> it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. That hasn't changed. It doesn't take me long just reading headlines in the news to remember that the world is evil. More importantly, it doesn't take me long with my eyes open in the morning to remember that I am evil <laughs> and I need a savior. <laughs> As uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton one time wrote in to a newspaper column uh, one time there was some question about like why the world is such a mess or whatever, um, or what's wrong what's wrong with the world I think was the question and his response G.K. Chesterton's response his response as he wrote into the newspaper was just dear sir I am that's <laughs> why that's why the world is a mess that's <laughs> what's wrong with the world <laughs> it's me but we have a savior. 
Isn't that the precious, the precious news that we cling to? Is that Jesus is kind to sinners. He's the friend of sinners. Um, so he continues, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. Remember, he's talking to his brothers. He said, you guys go ahead and go. I'm not going to go up yet, for my time has not yet fully come. It's that sort of phrasing I want you to pay attention to. John really really puts emphasis on this idea of his of Jesus' hour not being ready, of, of timing. Timing. Okay? And I think that's very interesting. Something that is difficult for me because I want everything right now. Um, I know none of you ever have felt that way uh, about anything. Uh, it's just something I wrestle with by myself, I know. Um, but, uh, you know, when I want something, I want it like right now. You know what I mean? Um, uh, but uh, there's a lot of emphasis placed in here on this idea of, of the right time or of his hour not yet being, uh, not yet having come, you know. And uh, that's difficult because it it pushes us into, in, in Jesus' um into this place of of being patient. I mean, this is the creator God who made everything. Remember the beginning of John's gospel? Without him, nothing was made that was made. And here is the one who made everything and is actively holding all of these elements together, all the particles <laughs> that make everything. He's holding it all together waiting, because his time had not yet fully come. This is humility beyond anything I could imagine. And he is still that that, uh, patient with me, too, thankfully. He said to his brothers, you guys go ahead and go. I'm not going up to this feast. My time has not yet fully come. That doesn't mean he's not going up at all. It means he's not going yet. He will go. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10 says, when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. This is fascinating to me. This is like secret agent Jesus here. Like, it, the, the there was this outward um, problem with him, and he knows that it's not the right time yet. And so now he he's still going up. This is one of the required feasts. All the males are to present themselves before the Lord. He's still going for, for tabernacles, for booths, but he's doing so secretly now. This is the Lord of glory going secretly to the one whom they're actually going to worship. Right? Like this is, this is unbelievably fascinating to me. And he goes um, <laughs> secretly. He also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people, sorry, much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he's good, others said no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. And we're going to see, like, in a couple of chapters, when we get to chapter 9, the man who was born blind when Jesus heals him. Like, you'll see why nobody wanted to speak openly about Jesus in Jerusalem. Because there was a lot of hostility gathering around this mysterious figure amongst the religious leaders, this mysterious figure, Jesus, and the things that he was doing. Okay, There was a lot of hostility gathering around it. As we see even in this chapter, it's, uh, we find them trying to take him numerous times, but nobody can because it's not yet his time. Okay. Some are saying he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. There was sort of this, it it seems like John's telling us, there was kind of this murmuring under 
like underground murmuring of of the things related to Jesus. But nobody would really talk openly about him at Jerusalem because they were afraid of the Jews, of the religious leaders, uh, of the leaders of Israel. Now, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Now, he's there's some... This was a common thing for Jesus. And and I think a difficulty might be that we assume, we make an assumption that when it says Jesus went into the temple and taught, that he's the only person doing that at that time. I think that's a wrong assumption. I don't think we need to make that kind of assumption. There probably were numerous rabbis or others who were teaching groups and things like that, right? Um, we're not talking about one giant auditorium with a, you know, a microphone and speakers and stuff like that. <laughs> right? It wasn't, wasn't like that, right? So um, uh, anyhow, so he goes to the temple and he teaches. Also keep in mind that in the temple compound itself around the outside of it, there were lots of rooms where they used for them for storage and they used them for other things. In fact, it's one in one of those rooms that what happens later on in the book of Acts, right? It's where they're meeting and praying when the Holy Spirit descends on them. It's one of those rooms that's in the outside walls around the temple uh, itself. So Anyhow, I just want to kind of help us wrap our minds around uh, some of that stuff. Okay, um, He goes up in the middle of the feast, went to the temple, and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? I love that. <laughs> I just love that phrase. How does he know letters? <laughs> like He's like he's teaching, and they're like, <laughs> um, obviously, illiteracy was such a common thing um, uh, throughout much of ancient history, um, right? Uh, illiteracy was an incredibly common thing. It, keeping the masses in ignorance, among other reasons, not just not just um, bad ones like this, but keeping the masses in ignorance is one of the best ways to maintain power over them, <laughs> right? And it happened uh, not only politically uh, in in a what you and I might refer to as a secular society in its leadership, but it also happened uh, spiritually and religiously even amongst church leadership. There are ages uh, where keeping the laity in ignorance was the best way uh, to continue to uh, you know to have the the coffers full of uh, indulgences and of, of whatever it is that you wanted to tell people because nobody could examine whether or not what you were saying was true because they didn't know how to read. Or uh, another, for instance, is that while some might have been able to read a common language, this is one of the things that became an issue um, with the Reformation, uh, is that uh, while many people might have been able to read the common languages at the time, the scriptures were not translated into the common languages, again, so as to keep the laity or the common people in ignorance of what the scriptures actually said. And so they may have the scriptures in Latin, but the common people don't know Latin, (laughs) right? So if you wanted to know what God has to say, you had to have a priest who was trained in Latin in, uh, in order to tell you what God said. And of course, you got to trust your priest at that point, right? What if he lies to you? You don't have any way to examine that to find out if what's being said is true or not. Uh, and this became one of the problems that led to, eventually led to uh, what you and I refer to now as the Reformation, because uh, some of the early reformers began to translate the scriptures into the common languages of the people and the uh, leadership uh, of the official church uh, Hated that. <laughs> right, right, and murdered them, right, uh, because of it. So, um, anyhow, so I love that phrase. They're like, how does this man know letters having never studied? Uh, but it does tell us something about, about Jesus, he, the, the figure that he was in, in the first century. Uh, you, you've got to see that this is shocking to the, um, the leadership, 
This is a shocking thing to them for this man to be standing up and to be teaching the way that he's teaching. Uh, not only the fact that they're like, how how does he do this? He doesn't he doesn't know letters. Uh, but then also uh, the way that he taught was different, and that's something referenced a number of times uh, throughout the gospel writings. The way that Jesus taught was different than the way that many of the rabbis taught at the time. Um, an example of that, a good example of that, I think is in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you've uh, read or you've heard that Moses said, and then Jesus follows it up by saying, but I say to you, right? That would have been an incredible, like, like unfathomable thing for many rabbis to say, because essentially you're putting yourself in the position of authority. Uh, while, while many rabbis would say, uh, Moses said this, and then rabbi so-and-so, and then they would quote some a different rabbi or someone else, uh, someone that they felt had authority about an issue, uh, and use that person as the, the authoritative figure. But Jesus used himself. He taught with authority, and that itself was a shocking thing for many of them. So they said, how does this man know letters having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine. Something to keep in mind with the word doctrine is, it means teaching. This is like the idea of like the things I'm teaching. That's what doctrine means. It means the teachings. Okay. So uh, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, and I love that phrase, if anybody wants to do what he wants, the will, the exercise of the will, what you want. If anyone wants to do what he wants, if anyone wills to do his will, He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. I think it's interesting that this is one of those places, as I've been mentioning, as we go through John's gospel, John has a lot of emphasis on the teachings of Jesus related to the sovereignty of God. And this is one of those places where it's like, Jesus is just so confident that the right people are going to hear what they need to hear. He's just sure of it. And that's hard for me because I find that I'm always trying to convince people of things. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that I shouldn't be necessarily. I, I just sometimes I, I, I don't forget, but I, I wrestle with how this meets up with, um, with our, our daily experience. And maybe maybe more to the point, how this meets up with something like my my relationship with my children and about their relationship to the Lord, you know. Remember Jesus had said to them previously when they said, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus' response was, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Like, this is what God is going to work, that you trust me, you trust the one who sent. Oh. Okay. Lord, help me to trust you. As we get into Paul's writings, and we you know, hear Paul talking about the idea of vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor, and Paul saying, what if God wants, with much patience, what if he endures vessels made for dishonor so that he can show the abundance of his grace on vessels for honor? You're like, what? <laughs> uh, all right. But what does that mean for me? Or what does that mean for my family? Or what does that mean for my friends? What does that mean for our community or our nation? I don't know. 
what if God is really more in control of things than I'm thinking he is? What if I can be less afraid than I am? What if the weight that I've been putting on things isn't really the weight they should have? What kind of effect might that have on me, on my psyche? I'm trying to figure this out, guys. <laughs> I don't have it figured out yet. <laughs> oh, but I'm enjoying walking with Jesus. And him being patient with me. <clears throat> he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. Um... But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus is speaking of himself here in these uh, ideas. Uh, he who see- speaks from himself seeks his own glory. I think that's one of the things maybe that uh, is also a characteristic of um, sometimes later on, a characteristic of false teachers or false teaching. And it's also one of the things that um, was rebuked by the prophets repeatedly, whether it was Jeremiah, Ezekiel does the same thing. There were situations where um, the Jews were some of the Jewish quote-unquote prophets were going around saying, peace to you guys, God's going to give you peace, everything's going to work out. And God's like, no, I'm no, I'm telling the prophets that you're going to all be sold into slavery and that you're going to captivity for 70 years. And like, why are you telling everybody peace, peace? Cause, and, and like in Jeremiah, it says, these prophets are liars and they're coming and telling people something of their own heart, but it's not from me, God says. It's not for me. What, what Could I have been that kind of prophet, right? You can't be a people pleaser and be that kind of prophet where you're like, no, everything's not going to work out, guys. I mean, it is it is eventually, but like you're going to go into slavery and you're going to die and stuff. But like, like it's going to work out, right? <laughs> but not the way you think. And, and then imagine this. When the, the crowd of prophets, when there are many of them saying, peace, peace to you. And like maybe raking in the dough or whatever, right? Like that's that's hard then to be to be a prophet and hear God's voice and God's like, you need to tell people that they're gonna be they're gonna be captured and sold into slavery, or whatever. And you can be like, for real? <laughs> like it'd be much better just to say peace, peace, and be raking in the dough, you know. If, if you know whatever, and and later on, like you find Jeremiah, he gets thrown into a pit because nobody likes his message. Right? They're like, uh, no, dude, we don't like what you're saying. It was the truth, and Jeremiah even felt that inwardly. And I I've wrestled with that where Jeremiah was like, I just I don't want to say anything. And then he was he was quiet long enough, and he was like, the word of God was like fire in my bones, and I could not shut up. You know, I have been there. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet no one, none of you keeps the law. I bet they didn't want to hear that. Oh, listen, they had to have known inwardly, deep inside, that they didn't actually keep the law. Even Paul would bring that up later, where Paul's talking about how, Paul's like, I could keep the law until... It went inward. Paul references the idea of the the last of the Ten Commandments, right? And Paul's like, when it came to covetousness, and I realized that I broke everything. 
because it means that it wasn't just the external act, but it was the internal motivations related to all of these things that God had said, and I have failed. You know, so um, <laughs> just very interesting thing. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Because that was their constant um, uh, sort of uh, line that they would go back to. So well, we keep the law. We keep the law. We aren't sinners like you guys. We keep the law. You know. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? John answers this, by the way, because we see in a couple of verses down, they're plotting to kill him, right? But the people are like, what are you talking about? You've, you've got an evil spirit. Who's trying to kill you? You know. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. Remember, circumcision itself as a practice actually predates Moses, right? Circumcision was given to Abraham and then passed on to Isaac and Jacob. Uh, so it was given to the fathers, but it was commanded in, in Moses. It was commanded by the law of Moses, but it existed before Moses as something that was part of the covenant made between God and Abraham. Okay. Um, so, um, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on, the, on Shabbat, circumcision of a, a, a man-child, of a boy, was to take place on a man-child. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> um, circumcision was to take place, according to Moses, <laughs> on the eighth day after birth uh, was to be uh, the day of circumcision. So, um, anyway, so if a man circumcised, uh, if a man cir- receives circumcision on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I may- made a man completely well on Shabbat? Right? Because, like, if if you're born at just the right time and the eighth day after your birth happens to be on Sabbath, you can't just put off your circumcision because you'd be breaking the law that commanded you to circumcise on the eighth day. Right? So you would still have to do that. They were criticizing Jesus because he had healed people on the Sabbath day. He had also given them several other situations where uh, it was obvious, even in God's commands, that you should be taking care of people. That wasn't what the Sabbath was about. Um, And this is another illustration of him bringing that out, like trying to explain, like, you really don't have any justifiable reason to be angry with me about breaking Moses' commands because I'm not actually doing that with what's happening. Okay? Um, why are you angry with me? Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath, on Shabbat? Don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This is not one of the verses that people usually throw up in the air when they say, when they don't want you to judge them. They're usually like, judge not lest you be judged, right, from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But they neglect this. Because really, judge not lest you be judged is actually about, as he continues speaking, you'll find that he's actually talking about making right judgments, not prejudging things, um, but but weighing things carefully. When he says things like, remove the, the plank from your own eye, then you can help your neighbor with the speck in their eye, right? That means you still are judging your neighbor. You're still making judgment about that, but you need to deal with yourself first, okay? And this is another reference to that kind of idea like judge don't judge according to just what things look like on the outside that's the way everybody judges we all judge quickly uh, and, and there's a there's a i think a, a mental heuristic is why you know sort of a survival thing or protect protecting ourselves from being hurt we make quick judgments about lots of things um but jesus is warning us that we ought to be careful in our judgments don't judge according to what things look like on the outside judge with righteous judgment now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Wait a minute. 
Didn't the people just say that nobody's seeking to kill him? Then they say he had a demon because nobody wants to kill him. You know, And now some of the people from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? See, because Jesus was right. People were trying to kill him. But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Messiah? Right? Because there are crowds of people here. And later on, when we get to the actual plot to arrest Jesus, one of the conditions of that plot is that they want to take him away from the crowds because they don't want lots of crowds of people gathering around him, maybe to protect him or whatever, like to take his side, right? So um, the people now are confused about why they're allowing Jesus to continue teaching in the temple if they want to kill him. They're confused about why this these events are happening because they seem to be in contradiction. Um, um, do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Messiah? Their, their response is like, wait a minute, do they actually, do they, do they know that this is really the Messiah? They know that this is the Christ? Is that why they're not arresting him while he's teaching publicly in the temple? However, we know where this man is from, they continue, but when the Messiah comes, no one knows where he's from. Obviously, somewhat poorly taught, this group is because <laughs> later on it's gonna uh, it's gonna be brought up that the scriptures did say that he is to be from uh, the house of David and from Bethlehem therefore that's what the prophecies had said so then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying you both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come of myself but he who sent me is true whom you do not know and that has to be heartbreaking for them to hear because they thought they knew the Lord. And Jesus is just laying it out there. This is why he could say to his brothers, the world hates me because I'm telling it that its works are evil. He who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. This very particular connection of the Father and the Son. Therefore they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him. I, I love this. John just keeps up this thing. Like this thing, there's this issue of timing. There's this issue of, of people trying to do something and frankly not being allowed to. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour hadn't come. John's just like, they couldn't do it. They wanted to take him, but they couldn't. His hour hadn't come yet. Many of the people believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? I also want, here's what I want to point out about that phrase. Read that sentence again. When the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? It says many people believed in him, but they didn't know he was the Messiah, right? Their question is like, they, they, put the, they were trusting this man, Jesus, but they didn't fully understand who he was, right? When the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Now the Pharisees are sort of, um, they're, they're ready to go ahead and arrest him if they can. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. I mean, this is like Jesus' response when they're coming to take him with officers now. I shall be with you a little while longer. It's basically him saying, you can't touch me, bro. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. You can't. <laughs> I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And of course, this confuses the people. But I think this is amazing. He is so sure. He's so confident. I'm going to be with you a little while longer. They're like, we're here to arrest you. And he's like, nah. Mm-mm. Nah. I'll be with you a little bit longer. 
<laughs> you got I feel like they're like, oh man, that's annoying. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they want to do away with him, right? They want they want him arrested now and killed. You know, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You'll seek me and not find me, and where I am, you can't come. Then the Jews said among themselves, they're confused by this. They said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the diaspora, the, the dispersion of the Jews amongst the, the Greek or amongst the, the, Gentile, um, the Gentiles or the Greeks specifically, as it says? Um, um, does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me. And where I, where I am, you cannot come. And they got zero answer. <laughs> There's no answer to that. They just, Jesus said what he said, and he left it. Again, it's like this confidence that he has that, that what, what needs to be said, he can say, and then he can leave it. <clears throat> On the last day, that great day of the feast, remember they're at um, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a week-long festival um, where they're commanded to have joy. <laughs> On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's also interesting that even after the resurrection, while Jesus hung around for a while, um, um, there was this time period between the resurrection and between the giving, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit there in Acts 2. Um, And not quite 50 days, but... If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See this connection of the phrase that Jesus used, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Um, And then he connects it with this, he who believes in me, this idea of trusting in him, of believing in him, is uh, related there. John tells us that Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given in a in the particular way that the Spirit would be given at Pentecost after Jesus was glorified, this promise of the Father. Um, Jesus had promised that another helper would come to them, and we'll get to that in John's Gospel, another helper comparable to, to Jesus, equal to him. Um, there are a lot of things I, I think that we could say about that. I want to finish the chapter here quickly. Um, and then I'd like to read a couple of, maybe a couple of places um, from the prophets related to that, related to this idea of living water flowing. It's a continual theme throughout the, the Jewish prophets in several places. And so I want to read some of those passages um, for us. But I do want to challenge you or ask you to consider this question. What does that mean? I grew up hearing this all the time. I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing this idea of rivers of living water, of putting my trust in Jesus, and of, of 
out of my heart will flow rivers of living water. But what is that? What does it even mean? I think when we read the prophets, I think it will help us to get an understanding of how they would have heard this. And I think that's helpful for us. Um, also, I think just considering the natural reality of flowing water, you know, one of the things that is uh, <laughs> we're always uh, looking for in like uh, cosmology and other things, and we're like, if we can just find water on other planets, right? Because water is such an in- integral part of what we know related to life and about how life works here. This idea of living water or flowing waters, something that we've talked about a little bit um, before, particularly in Jesus speaks of something similar when he talks to the woman at the well. You remember that story, the woman at the well, um, Jacob's well there in Sychar, and the promise that he gave to her. Out of his heart flow rivers of living water. But what is that? What is rivers of living water? What is that even supposed to mean? I don't want to, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to just make something up and say, this must be what it means. <laughs> That's scary. But it has to mean something, right? Or else it means nothing. So then what does it mean? Just think about it. <laughs> Keep thinking about it. <laughs> Therefore, um, Verse 40, therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly this is the prophet. That's a reference to the Deuteronomy promise. Uh, Right before Moses dies, he promises that God is going to send another prophet uh, like Moses, and him, the nation of Israel, would hear. Okay, So um, some said, truly this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah, Uh, which, of course, uh, we have come to know are the same thing, (laughs) the same one person. Okay both the Messiah and the prophet. But some said, will the Messiah come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Remember previously there were some people saying, we don't know where the Messiah is from. But here they're they're clarifying that they actually did know. Um, and the, again, this may have been different people, different parts of the crowd, that sort of thing. So I think it's important to remember that. Um, Will the Messiah come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on them. Again, the same sort of phrase, phrasing that like they wanted to do something with Jesus, but, but they couldn't take him. They couldn't capture him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? Remember, they sent a detachment of, of officers, of troops, to go get Jesus. And now they're back, and the officers, uh, they come to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they, they ask him, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. <laughs> they're like, I, guys, <laughs> like, this is different. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Uh, which, by the way, as we're going to see in the next couple of seconds, Nick at night's pretty close, right? <laughs> Nick, who came to Jesus by night, you know, that's in John chapter three. You know, all of that discussion of being born from above or being born again, all of that. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, all of that. That's in that context of that conversation with Nicodemus. 
one of the Pharisees. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. It's brutal, man. That was their attitude, though. It was like, it was like, yeah, these common people—they don't know anything. They're dumb, <laughs> right? <laughs> like Nicodemus, as we read, verse fifty. Nicodemus, uh, as we just mentioned, rather, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, "Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing?" Listen, he's right. That's a completely reasonable thing to say, but not when you're being driven by anger and jealousy, and envy, and pride. Even the reasonable options become unreasonable to one controlled by their anger, and their pride, and their fear. I think we've all probably lived that before. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? That's literally the definition of prejudicial, right? Pre judging. They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? <laughs> You're just his buddy from, from back home. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> this is Nicodemus. Like, what are they talking about? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee, but it didn't matter. Jesus wasn't actually from the Galilee. He was from exactly where they had said, the Messiah was to be from, according to the prophets. But apparently they didn't take the time to consider, <laughs> or at least it's not brought up here yet. Rivers of living water. Um, really quickly, we'll end with a couple of things that I just want to read to you. Um The first one is in Jeremiah 2. Uh, it must have been hard to, to be Jeremiah. Um, so here's the beginning of Jeremiah's prophecies as he's speaking to the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 2, uh, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have, forsake, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, what does that mean in relation to Jesus' promise that those who drink from him would have fountains of living water? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. It's God. And Jesus is telling them that he was going to be with them. God with them. This is the Emmanuel promise. God with us. <clears throat> That's Jeremiah 2.13. Later on, a similar thing is mentioned. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. See, in Jeremiah, the Lord himself is the fountain of living waters. And now Jesus is saying, um, as we read... <laughs> that uh, um, come to me, all you who thirst, right? Out of his inmost being. 
out of his heart will flow rivers of water, of living waters. Um, <clears throat> Zechariah 14 speaks of something similar. In that day, this is a promise of restoration. In that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, something that Israel was to be looking forward to. Living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea, and both summer and winter it shall occur. You can read more of that Zechariah 14 prophecy. Um, here's another another prophecy, Isaiah 55, another one of the what's considered sort of fulfillment or end time prophecies, the fulfillment of all things. Um, in Isaiah 55, it begins with this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This incredible promise of fulfillment. And then related to that are the promises in uh, the end of the book of Revelation. Um, and I, I don't know how else to... Oh, we're late. I wanted to read it. Um, read Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two. Okay. Read that when you get home. Um, Revelation 22 begins this way, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each fruit tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. Man, doesn't that sound so wonderful? That's why God wants us to know that. Because it's his promise. I know that things can be hard and disheartening here. <laughs> the way things are now. But this ain't it, guys. <laughs> this isn't the fulfillment, the fullness of the promises. Okay? What this means is that we go out as ambassadors. <laughs> we go out having this treasure in earthen vessels, the reality of what's been promised, <clears throat> that we both embrace and we find in ourselves, in our hearts or out of our hearts, flow rivers of living water. Think about what that idea means to, and again, I've, I've asked you to think about these things, about what that idea means to an agrarian society that needs flowing waters to survive. It's a necessary part of life. I mean, obviously we need that as well, but if you're subsistence farming and you are taking care of your own land, you need rivers of living water in your land. <laughs> Okay? And somehow you've got to get it there. One of the promises of Israel when they went into the promised land was that they wouldn't have to pump water with their foot like they had to in, in Egypt. Egypt is very fertile as long as you're right at the Nile. Right? And then everywhere else is dust. Right? It's just sand and dirt everywhere. Right? So if you want to get water anywhere else, you've got to make it get there. Whatever. And one of God's promises uh, to Israel as they entered the land was that there was a... a um, a system of watering the land, you and I know regularly, but uh, as a normal thing, right? But it was different than what they had experienced in Egypt, right? Um, 
all of these things would become uh, illustrations that God used to demonstrate his promises to Israel. He watered the land. He took care of it. He caused it to rain. One of the reasons why they poured out the water at the Feast of Tabernacles was that it was the beginning of the rainy season in Israel. It begins shortly after this. And it was a reminder of that because you had to have the rainy season to continue to grow crops, to continue to, to take care of your, your land and yourself and your family. Okay, All of these things speak of, of all of these promises that God has made. And at the end of the day, I find myself having to sit down and say, Lord, Help me to trust you today. Because quite frankly, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. But I know that you're good, Father, because you've shown me today that you're good and I can trust you. And I, um, Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us to depend on you more and more and more each day. And not in a fake, like, I don't know how else to say it. Continue to make us a family of people rooted on solid ground, Lord, on the truth of your word. I'm just sometimes I'm just so afraid. I'm afraid of of um, failing, and I'm afraid of 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 um, seeing people that I love taken advantage of. I pray that you would continue to teach us your word. And that you would help us to be faithful to you, faithful to each other. Make us into servants. Teach us ways that we can help each other, and we can help each other's families. Please, Lord, may we have, in whatever way we are able to, a little slice of the fullness of your kingdom, even here in this family. Lord, you know. You know what I mean. And you know what's right, even if what I mean is dumb. (laughs) Father, I want to be more confident in your word and more confident in, in your sovereign power. Help me to hear the words of the prophets, which is more than that. It's your word, God. Pray that you bless your people and that as we have believed in you and have found this to be true, this promise of your spirit whom you have given, Father, thank you. Thank you that out of our hearts flow rivers of living water. Let it continue to be true. (laughs) Only you can do that. So fill us with your spirit again, I pray. Please do it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, you guys, I have no idea about what <laughs> it's 2022. I still can't like, <laughs> I can't wrap my head around that. So <laughs> it's wild. 
so let's see. We'll see uh, this year. Hopefully, I'd like to talk about in the next couple of weeks, as I mentioned to you, maybe some uh, things that we might try or some ideas that we might try to just step out into and ways to serve each other and serve our community together. So uh, we'll continue to pray about that stuff. But I really want the Lord to bless you and to keep you. And I want the Lord to make his face shine on you. And I want him to be gracious with you. And I really, really want the Lord to lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, you guys. And you have peace as you're, you're, you're rooted on the rock, the solid ground. Okay. Love you guys. You're dismissed.